Some people have asked the question, are you going to preach a specific sermon on this coronavirus? And the answer is no, I couldn't find coronavirus anywhere in the Bible. And so I had a hard time figuring that out. But I will say um, we're going to continue in our series through the overlooked letters in 2 John. So if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and open it up. And even if you're at home and you're with family and friends, grab your Bible. We sent out ahead of time, which we'll do each Saturday night during this time, um, the outline for the sermon and also uh, the bulletin. So you can have all of that uh, prepared for you. But we'll be looking in 2 John, and we're also going to take a little tour throughout the New Testament, so you may have to turn some pages. But I think our tech team is able to put some of the verses or all of the verses on the screen for you uh, as well, some of the supplemental things. And so this is a test. We've never done this before. So be patient, and we'll see what the Lord has for us. But I do want to say this. In God's providence, I just find this fascinating. In God's providence, we're just continuing 2 John. And if you look down at verse 12... Here's what the Apostle John wrote. He says, Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. You can tell that John preferred face to face, but he made use of the technology of his day, which is pen and ink. It was a concession based on his circumstances. This is not ideal for the Apostle John, nor is it ideal for us. So as a pastor, I would rather not use online streaming. I'd rather not have to use the technology which is available to us. Instead, I much prefer face-to-face. I much prefer hearing one another's voices. I much prefer hugging, shaking hands, and the various other things that we can do when we are with one another. And so we long for the time when we can come back together. But I find it in God's providence how amazing it is that we're continuing through this series and we have this section of 2 John for this day. And so there's no accidents. The Lord knows what he's doing. So we're going to pick it up in verse 8. We're going to finish the second half of this great letter from the Apostle John. And this is what he writes in verse 8. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy joy may be complete. The children of our elect sister greet you. So, Father, we ask that in this time, Lord is distracted filled as this next 45 minutes will be because we are in a place we're not used to. This is not normal for many of us. I ask God that you would, by your Holy Spirit and according to your sovereignty, that you would create a moment for us that we can focus in on you and that we can hear from you and that through your word, by your spirit, you would move within us and that you would act upon us in ways that we need most well we don't know exactly what that is but you do we're grateful that you know us better than we know ourselves and so you can look and see our needs and you can meet them and so we ask God that you would indeed meet our needs Lord we look also to our nation we look also to our community we look to the world around us and we ask God that for all those who are hurting and all those who are affected which is billions of people. God, that your comfort, that your wisdom, that your ever-present help, 
Lord, it would permeate your world. And I'm mindful of Habakkuk, how he prayed and desired for the glory of the Lord to cover the world as the waters cover the sea. And so, Lord, may your renown be all over the world. So watch out for us, Lord. Watch over us. Protect us. Provide for us. Do all that you know we need. You rule as king over a great kingdom. And as we've had chance to sing together, God, you're so good. And you're in charge. And so in these uncertain times, we just commit ourselves to you, entrusting ourselves to you who is faithful. You will never leave us nor forsake us. And so on these promises, we stand boldly because you are our refuge and our hope. So God, now meet with us, we ask, and we'll give you all the thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. This section of John's letter is a challenge, a challenge, to be honest. One of the reasons why it's a challenge is because the first thing he says is, watch yourselves. That's usually not uh, how you start out giving somebody really good advice and really uplifting you know, encouragement and motivation. Watch yourselves is the idea that danger is lurking. And so the reason why the Apostle, Paul, uh, the Apostle John is writing, watch yourselves, is because he understands that there is a danger that is lurking. If you remember last week, we talked about how the Apostle John was writing to a cluster of churches around the city of Ephesus. And in the city of Ephesus, it's a very popular, very well-known church. It was significant in the life of the early church. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take us on a little tour through the New Testament about the city of Ephesus and the church that is there. And what we're going to see is that the city of Ephesus and the church that is in Ephesus was warned ahead of time that danger is lurking, that the idea of false teaching, which is what John is talking about in 2 John, it is a legitimate danger. It is something that we need to be on the watch for. And it all begins in Acts chapter 20, where the apostle Paul calls the Ephesian elders on the shores of Miletus, and then he gives this great speech to this cluster of elders. He says this in Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 18. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day when I, that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. But I do not count my life as of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. And therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from you, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. 
Remember that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands have ministered to my necessities and to those who were, were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. You can tell the Apostle Paul is urgently warning the Ephesian elders, you have been tasked with the responsibility of watching over this flock of God and people will come in and they will be dressed as wolves in sheep's clothing and they will try to draw away the disciples and even from among your own number, that is, even from your own elder board, will come false teachers. And so the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 10 through 16, and he simply says this, he who, descend, he who descended is the one who ascended far above the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So the Apostle Paul writes to the church and says, look, Cunning, craftiness, deceit, it can draw you away, but you know what? The solution is speak the truth in love. And so when the Apostle Paul speaks to Timothy, who is the pastor in Ephesus, here's what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 3. The Apostle Paul says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Now, just in case anyone's wondering whether or not Paul's being rude and Timothy is going to be mean, he says the aim of our charge is love. That issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. And then he goes on to say in chapter 4, verse 1, the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith and devote themselves to deceitful spirits. And then he goes on to say in 1 Timothy chapter 6 about false teachers and, and all the rest. And you can jump to 2 Timothy and you look in chapter 3 where he talks about godlessness in the last days and he says that there will be some who will accumulate teachers to teach them what their itching ears want to say. But I want to fast forward to Revelation chapter 2. When we get to Revelation chapter 2, this is the last we hear in the New Testament about the church in Ephesus. And Jesus has this to say to the church. In chapter 2, verse 2. <clears throat> I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. 
I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So Jesus says, good job. Good job holding to gospel truth. Good job. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works as you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So Jesus says, good job, you kept the gospel truth. I'm really proud of you. You're doing a good job of holding true to the true teaching. But here's a problem. In your commitment to the truth, you have neglected love. And if you are so committed to the truth that you are neglecting love, I have that against you and you need to repent. You need to return to the love that I've commanded you to have. Good job on the truth, but the love is weak. So he goes on to say, Verse 6, yet this I have, uh, and yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has in here, let him hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So Jesus says, great job, but I'm telling you, the love has grown cold. And you need to repent and you need to grow in your love. Now, does repenting of lovelessness mean that we should stop focusing on doctrine? Are we supposed to stop worrying about truth? Does pursuing love mean that we ignore doctrine altogether and we just kumbaya? I don't think so. Jesus says, good job on maintaining the truth, bad job on losing your love, but good job on hating the works of the Nicolaitans. In other words, as you can read later on to the church in Pergamum, Jesus kind of puts the works of the Nicolaitans with sexual morality and idolatry. And so Jesus is saying, love has certain hates. If you love truth, then you will hate falsehood. If you love Jesus, you will hate evil and sin. And if you love the truth of the gospel and all of the work of the gospel that flows into our daily lives, then you will hate the work of the Nicolaitans because it's probably revolving around sexual morality and idolatry. So Jesus is commending the church in Revelation 2, the church in Ephesus. Good job on commitment to the truth. Good job on hating what you ought to hate, but bad job on love. You've got to grow in your love. Now the reason why this is significant is because when you go back to 2 John, and remember in verse 7, we talked about last week, the Apostle John said, for many deceivers, and so the reason why John is advocating love is because many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. And therefore, John says, watch yourselves. Watch yourselves. The Ephesian church already knew. Paul warned them, you need to watch yourselves. This is coming. Then you have Timothy is charged with staying in Ephesus to confront false teaching because it had run rampant. But remember, the aim of the charge is love. It was all love-based. It was love-motivated. we got to stop this false teaching for the purposes of love. And then by the time you get to Revelation, you see Jesus commending the church for its truth, but then condemning the church, the church for its lovelessness. And so John is emphasizing the fact that, you know what? Some people have denied the coming of Jesus in the flesh. And so we need to be vigilant and we need to be watchful 
to deceptive teaching of false teachers. That's what he means in verse 8. In the historical time of John, more than likely there was a group of people called docetists. Docetism was a belief that Jesus only appeared as a human being like a hologram. So whenever Jesus walked on the sand, he didn't leave footsteps. He was just a mirage, so to speak. And they believed that because they thought that the physical world was evil. True salvation is when you leave your flesh, you leave your body, and you are saved. You are liberated from the bondage of body. It's a form of semi-Gnosticism. What's interesting is this view was refuted by Tertullian and Ignatius and Polycarp in the first two centuries of the church. And that's one reason why the apostle uh, John emphasized the fact that he touched Jesus, he saw Jesus, and he heard Jesus. Remember that from 1 John chapter 1. There was also a teacher named Serentius in the early church, about 100 years after John or so. And he taught that the Christ, <clears throat> that is the Messiah, that the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the deity of Christ, actually fell upon Jesus at his baptism. And that is the point at which Jesus became divine. So Jesus was not born as God, but he became God a little bit later on. He became God when the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descended upon him. Therefore, Jesus became the Christ, and becoming the Christ, having been anointed by the Holy Spirit, he was enabled to perform miracles and work wonders. This teaching denies the full deity of Jesus as the eternal Son of God, who became flesh and dwelt among us. And so that's kind of the historical background of what's going on in John. This is how it kind of came to be. So how can we be watchful and vigilant? Because one of my fears is that when you read a text like 2 John and then you conclude, oh, you know what I need to do is get on my cape and become the heresy hunter. And I need to go around and monitor everything. And I'm going to make sure on social media and everywhere else that I'm um, making sure people aren't heretics. And that's not necessarily what we should be doing. It's important to identify heresy, but it's important to understand how to go about doing it. I've been so helped by ministry, um, by the ministry of Dr. Al Mohler, who's the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And uh, he wrote an article some years ago called Theological Triage. And in his article on theological triage, he talks about how we need to implement a process where we can sort out the weightiness of certain theological convictions, like triage. If you're paying attention to the news, you'll notice that there's a lot of hospitals that are inundated with patients from the coronavirus, and they are having to determine which patients that they attend to, and they use triage in order to determine that. There are some who are in a worse state than others. Those who are really sick are admitted, and those who aren't very sick are sent back home. That whole process is called triage. And so what Al Mohler encourages us to do is to use a process of theological triage. That we need to determine which theological topics are more urgent and weighty than others. And so he, pose, he proposes three categories. The first category he proposes are what are called the essential categories. These are things which are essential to the Christian faith, things like the Trinity, deity and humanity of Jesus, justification by faith, the authority of Scripture. These are non-negotiable essentials. In fact, if you were to deny or twist these doctrines, you are committing what is called heresy or false teaching. The second order or the second weighty 
category or issues are distinct from the first by this. That there are bona fide, true, believing Christians that will disagree on these issues, but they are still important issues that cause us to kind of worship and to live our lives as Christians differently. And so there is a differentiation in the practice of our faith, and sometimes there is a difference in our fellowship because of these doctrines. And what I mean by that is simply we can't necessarily worship together because we have a disagreement about the worship, um, just in how we come together. Let me give you some examples to kind of shape this in your thinking. The way that we conduct ourselves when it comes to church government There's an Episcopalian form of church government, which has a bishop, and then you uh, have the government, which is underneath it. There's a form of church government, which is led by elders. There's a form of church government, which is congregational. As you can tell, you can't do all three. For either the congregation or the elders or a bishop has the authority in a local church. You can't do all three. And so you, can't, you have to make a decision. How are we going to govern ourselves? And whatever answer we come up with, that's going to differentiate us from somebody else. And so that's a second order issue. Or how about the mode of baptism or the subject of baptism? Are we going to baptize infants or only confessing believers? You can't do both. You're going to do one or the other. That's a theological conviction. And that will dictate how we function as a church. And so you can see, these are just two examples. If we look at these two examples, then we can see how a second order thing, and they're significant because it changes the way that we do church, but they're not so significant that we would call somebody who holds views that we don't, we would never call them non-believers. We would never call them not Christian. The first category, yes, not Christian. Second category, no, 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 they're, they're believers. They just have a different look on these things, outlook. And then there's the third order things. These are things that believing Christians disagree about, but it does not affect our fellowship. We don't have to go to a different church about these things. These things are less significant in, in terms of just weightiness. Things like the timing of Jesus' second coming or the sequence of events in which he will come. Or a topic like dichotomy or trichotomy in humanity, whether we are uh, soul, spirit, and body, or whether we are just material or immaterial. These things are third category. They shouldn't divide us when it comes to fellowship, but they are places where we need to probably come to a conclusion, understanding that um, if you have a different view, it's totally fine. Differentiating between these beliefs does not mean that we're taking doctrine less seriously. It just means we're trying to do theological triage. We're trying to weigh out the weightiness of what is being taught, whether it's first order, second order, or third order. Theological liberalism, they tend to deny that there is any first order. And they tend to say, you know what, everything is third order. Everything is just preference, whatever you want to do. You think Jesus is God, great. You don't, great, whatever. That's not good. However, fundamentalism tends to deny that there are any third-order issues. Everything is essential. And so the color of your carpet, you're going to go to hell if you choose the wrong color. It's that kind of thing. So that is why there's so much conflict denominationally in churches is because not that we have first-order, second-order, third-order things or that that is a good 
That's why we have conflict. That's, that's not why we have conflict. We have conflict because we treat third order things as first order and we treat first order things as third order. And so we need to make sure to have them in their proper ordering. And so the Apostle John says, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for but may win a full reward. You need to be on the watch for false doctrine. You need to be vigilant and watchful for what is being taught because there's high stakes. You may lose a full reward. Now what in the world is he talking about when it comes to losing? I think what he means is you may lose what you've worked for, what we've worked for. If you notice, he says, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, and it could also be you have worked for, but you may win a full reward. I think it's the idea that the gospel ministry and the labor that goes into ministry, it will be all for naught if these folks abandon the true teaching of Jesus. And why I think that is because the way the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, if you remember this from a couple weeks ago at the Lord's Prayer, the Apostle Paul says, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. In other words, we, would, we labored the gospel with you. We preached and we, and we did everything we could. And we're just so afraid of the fact that you have somehow thrown your faith away and our work in the Lord is just a waste of time. It's a complete vanity. And so we've lost it. And I think that's what the Apostle John is talking about. Now, is he talking about that we, uh, you know, salvation is by works? No. The Apostle John records Jesus this way in John chapter 6 about Jesus talking about work. Jesus says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And so Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. In other words, in Jesus' mind, the work that we are supposed to do is not really a work at all. It's just faith. And so the apostle John is worried that his work in the gospel is going to be for naught, and their faith will be for naught if they abandon Christ and the true teaching of Christ. Some may say, does this mean that you can lose your salvation? And the answer is clearly no. And the reason I say that is because of 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, where the Apostle John says, some people went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out so that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Daniel Aiken, who's a theologian, he writes in his commentary this. For the Apostle John, perseverance is the proof of possession. To, to stay with Christ gives the clearest evidence that one belongs to Christ. So stay true. Goes on to verse 9. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Now we get into the more sobering part of this letter. Well, the Apostle John is actually teaching us something that is very difficult for us to hear. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The word goes on ahead is the idea of moving past something or wandering away. It gives the idea of innovation. And if you think about it, when you innovate, you actually leave something behind. So when the iPod came out, it left the disc man behind. If you remember the disc man. 
And so anyone who moves on ahead or innovates and advances, progresses, and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. John says that if you go beyond the teaching of Christ, that is either Jesus' teaching or the teaching about Jesus. Either way, if you go beyond that, you try to innovate that or you try to advance that, you do not have God. You have to let that sink in. You don't have God if we alter or change or advance or progress or improve the gospel. It's not just that you got the gospel wrong, but you still, you're you're fine. The Apostle John says, you don't have God, no matter how much you think you do. You see, novel innovations about Jesus that deny the essential teaching of Christianity, and that's what John is talking about, because remember in verse 7, these people are saying that Jesus, they are not confessing that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. In other words, they're denying his incarnation. They're denying that he is the eternal son of God. They are denying, therefore, his deity and full humanity. They are denying, therefore, the Trinity. And folks who do that do not have God. Those who deny Jesus as truly human, truly divine, they don't have God. Those who deny the virgin birth, they do not have God. Those who deny his atoning death and bodily resurrection, they do not have God. I've heard people say that we've evolved past all that blood and resurrection mythology. Jesus is just teaching us how to live good lives. We don't want to be on the wrong side of history after all. We need to progress. And the Apostle John would say, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. These are weighty matters. So when you turn to 1 John chapter 2, verses 22 to 25, the Apostle John writes there, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you have heard from the beginning, notice from the beginning, not not progressive, but beginning, abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us eternal life. What does it mean to have God? What does it mean to abide in the Father and Son? It means to have eternal life. And those who do not abide in the teaching of Christ but go beyond it do not have eternal life. As in John's day, so too in our day. There are many people who claim to be followers of Jesus, but they do not abide in Jesus' teaching, nor the teaching about Jesus. And the only conclusion we can draw from this letter is that they don't have God. This is a first order issue. There are so many examples I could use for today's culture about how you see this flesh out. But at the risk of taking forever, even though people have commented online that I have more time and I can go over time, I'm trying to respect the time frames. But I will just give us one brief example. There is a movement in so-called evangelical Christianity called the Word of Faith Movement. The Word of Faith Movement is led by various names like Creflo Dollar, Benny Hinn, Joel Osteen, Joyce Meyer, Bill Johnson, T.D. Jakes, Miles Monroe, Charles Capp, Todd White, Kenneth Copeland, and many others. I don't normally like to name names, but sometimes you have to because as I read in Acts chapter 20, as an elder or a pastor of a church, we need to be watchful. 
And we need to make sure that we are protecting the sheep. And it's not good for me to just do vague generalities, but instead I need to be more precise about what to be watchful of. Their divergent theology is far too complex for me to unpack in the next five, five minutes. So instead, I would encourage you to read literally the thousands of pages that have been in print that is exposing this deviant theology. Or you can watch American Gospel, The American Gospel, which is a documentary which will introduce you to that. So if you haven't done that, watch that documentary, The American Gospel, or perhaps read a book by uh, Hank Hanegraaff called uh, the Christian, uh, Christianity in Crisis, um, that'll help you. The one example about their teaching I want to give is this. It's the demotion that they make to God and the deification of man. So they demote God and they deify man. How do they do that? In the word of faith teaching, God is no longer the authority or ruler over the universe. Satan is. When Adam and Eve sinned, they gave their dominion over to Satan. And so now Satan is dueling with God over the world as co-authorities over the created world. Satan is called the God of this age, and uh, he has dominion over the world, so they teach, and therefore God and Satan are at odds, which obviously some of that is true. But they talk about how we have a major part in the battle between God and Satan. We can actually come alongside of God and help him. I'm, I'm using direct words. We can help God defeat Satan. Here's how. When we talk about fear, we side with Satan. That is the teaching of Joel Osteen, Joyce Meyer, T.D. Jakes, Todd White, Kenneth Copeland, Bill Johnson. When you use the word fear or you talk about fear, you are siding with Satan. And, and it's kind of like this 50, you know, like there's a battle. And so like Satan starts to win if you talk about fear. And then the other side of it is if you talk about faith, then you begin to side with God. And so it's like a tug of war. And so all of a sudden, God's side starts winning if we start using the word faith and talking about faith. But then if we talk about fear, it goes back. But then if faith, oh. And so God and Satan are co-equals, and they're just in this tug of war. And ultimately, you and I have the power to decide who wins the tug of war. So if God wants to do anything in the world he created, he has to get the devil's permission because the devil has dominion over the world. Here's how Kenneth Copeland puts it. God injected his word into the earth to produce Jesus. These faith-filled words that frame the image that is in Jesus. God just can't walk onto earth and say, let there be, because he doesn't have the right. He has to sneak it in here around the God of this world who's been blocking every way that he possibly could. You hear what he's saying? The word became flesh and dwelt among us, not because God planned it and God did it, but because God had to get Satan's permission to do it, and Satan said no, and so God had to sneak Jesus in here. Or Miles Monroe teaches, when God wants to do anything on earth, even to save us, he has to send a human being to earth to do it, and he sent Jesus. And therefore, whatever is done on earth, a human must give God permission to do it. And in the word of faith teaching, the permission we give to God is through our words. The only way the devil can be defeated is if we exercise faith, which gives God permission to act so that we and God are co-equals. And together, arm in arm, we can recapture the dominion that has been lost.
in this thinking. Faith is a force, and our words are the containers of that force. And through the force of faith, we can create our own reality. Did you get that? So pretend you have a a bowl and it contains the force. I'm not talking about Star Wars. I'm talking literally about the word of faith teaching. So you have this bowl, and within the bowl is the force of faith. Now how you pour out the force of faith out into the world is through your words. So your words are the product of your thinking. So you have to think positive thoughts, then you'll have positive words, and your positive words are the outpouring of the force of faith that causes Satan to be defeated by the strength of God, which is really your strength, not his. So your thoughts will produce these words. They will alter your reality. And so if you want to be healthy, then you need to speak your health into existence. Conversely, if you think about it, they never talk about this, but this is the logical conclusion. If your baby dies or if you get cancer, it's your fault. Because you haven't exercised faith. You haven't changed your reality. You haven't poured out that faith force into the world. Now think about that for the coronavirus. The reason why all these people are getting sick and dying is because obviously they don't have faith. And if they just had faith and they just said the right words and they just thought the right thoughts, this whole disease would be eradicated. So that is how God is demoted and how humanity is deified. Now what does this have to do with Jesus? Well, in the Word of Faith teaching, humans are what are called little G-gods. They are equals to Jesus because they share the same DNA. I'm not making this up. And what this means is that Jesus became divine at his anointing, which most faith, word of faith teachers will say is his baptism. He became anointed, and his anointing of the Holy Spirit at his baptism is what enables him to do miracles. And so, because you share the very same DNA as Jesus, if you get anointed by the Spirit, which is spirit baptism, then you can do the very same miracles Jesus did because he's no better than you. End quote. You share the same DNA. You can take back this generation for God by speaking into existence with words the reality you desire since your faith is a force and can move mountains. End quote, Joyce Meyer. Most notably, the word of faith considers the act of singing as the most powerful form of the force of faith because they believe that that is where the spirit resides and where our words are combined into the impenetrable, um, unstoppable force. That is why many of the new forms of word of faith have such an emphasis on music. Because when you gather for singing, they believe that the Holy Spirit, that is when he is most present. And when we sing, we use words. And so we're pouring out the, the force faith. And so in the singing, that is where literally reality is altered. And that is one reason why Bethel music is so popular, is they are literally trying to change reality through their music because they believe that through our singing we can alter the universe. So in word of faith teaching, God is demoted. And when God is demoted and humanity is deified, it definitely calls into question the Trinity, does it not? 
And if we have the same exact DNA as Jesus and we can do all the things Jesus did because he's no better than us, we are equal to him, then that does call into question the true divinity and the true humanity of Jesus, does it not? And if the divinity and humanity of Jesus are questioned and the deification of humanity causes us to question the Trinity, these are first order essential issues, are they not? And if they are first essential first order essentials, then what do we do with those things when we read verse 9 that everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God? What do you do with that? In other words, what would the Apostle John have to say? And then when you go on to read verse 9, the rest of it, there's, a, there's a, a, an inverse. Whoever abides in the teaching, whoever stays true to the truth of the gospel, has both the Father and the Son. If you don't abide in the teaching of Christ, you don't have God. But if you do abide in the teaching of Christ, you do have God. You do have eternal life. Why is that? Because there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved than Jesus Christ. As the apostle said, Jesus, he contains the words of eternal life. And so Peter says, where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of life. So application-wise, here's what John says in verse 10. So if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, that is the true teaching of the gospel, if they come to you and don't bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. In other words, do not extend hospitality to this person. You cannot do that. Now the reason why you cannot do that is because of the way that the culture was in the ancient world. In the ancient world, hospitality was the only means that teachers had to really have a livelihood. They were dependent on homes and they were dependent on the money and the food they received from the hospitality as they traveled around the world. So when you had somebody visiting you who was a teacher or a preacher, when you welcomed them into your home and supplied them with food and resources, you not only are welcoming them as a human being, but you are welcoming their teaching as well you are giving them approval and so john says don't do that don't greet them and don't welcome them into your homes we have an example in matthew chapter 10 verse 14 where jesus says if anyone when he sends out the disciples he says if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town in other words if you are rejected, notice he says, if, if you are not received, if you are rejected, or the people will not listen to your words, that is, or they reject your teaching, then move on. Because people knew when teachers came to town, they needed a place to stay, they needed food to eat, and they needed resources. But if you rejected the teaching that they brought, then you reject giving hospitality. We understand this. Because you and I withhold our resources from things we disagree with. Politically speaking, if you support a particular party, you will support them with your resources. If you don't agree with a cause or a political party, you don't support them with your resources. We get that. And the same thing is true here. John says you need to withhold your hospitality in order to show no support for their teaching. Now, John is not saying be rude. He's not saying that you can be unkind. He's not saying that you can be 
hateful. Because remember, the Ephesian church has already received their instruction that we are to love. Speak the truth in love. Doesn't mean love at the rejection of truth, nor does it mean hold to the truth at the rejection of love. We've got to hold both. And so in our rejection of falsehood, we need to maintain the love. Because the aim of our charge is love, as Paul wrote to Timothy. And Jesus said, good job on holding to truth, but this is what I have against you, love. So we need to maintain both, which is what I would say almost impossible it feels at times. But it must be our course of action. As Paul writes in Colossians 4, we need to walk in wisdom towards outsiders making the best use of the time. We need to let our speech be gracious. In 1 Peter 3, Peter says that we need to be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks for us, asks us of the hope that we have, but we need to do this with gentleness and respect. And so, brothers and sisters, we cannot be jerks. But at the same time, we cannot welcome this teaching. One example in our culture is the word of faith teaching. We cannot welcome it. Somebody asked me last week, does that mean I can't have Mormons in my house or I can't have JWs in my house? Does that mean I can't have people in my home? Does that mean I can't drink coffee or eat lunch with people who believe differently than me? And I said, no, 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 no. Be kind and still befriend people and be in relationship with people and love and pray and serve people. It's just don't support their teaching. So when two Mormon missionaries come to your door, don't give them 50 bucks for their mission. When a JW comes, don't buy what they have to offer. When the Word of Faith movement comes and you are inundated with it on your feed, don't share their content. Don't buy their albums. Because the more we purchase their stuff, the more that they are resourced to get their false teaching out. And the more we share their stuff, the more that their false teaching gets out. And here's the danger. Look at the rest of verse 10 into verse 11. Don't give him any greeting. Why? Because, verse 11, whoever greets him, whoever supports this person who teaches this, takes part in his wicked works. Which means you are participating in the dissemination of false teaching. I remember reading that this week and I I literally shuddered. It was like, oh, holy smokes. This is like serious stuff. The word there, participate or take part, is the word koinonia. It's the word fellowship. When we support false teachers and their false teaching, we are fellowshipping with them. But if you remember in 1 John chapter 1, verses 3 and four, what the apostle John writes there in 1 John chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he says, you know, we're proclaiming the gospel to you. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Why? So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. So what John is saying is the only way to have fellowship with God is to maintain the truth of the gospel. Jesus, whom we have heard and seen and touched, you have to stay true to his teaching. That's the only way to have fellowship with God. And if we have fellowship with God because of the truth of God, then we have fellowship with one another. But if we divert from the truth of the gospel, we do not have fellowship with God anymore. Instead, our fellowship is not with the saints. Our fellowship is with 
Satan and his children. We do not have God. Jesus said it like this in his high priestly prayer, John 17, verse 20. Praying for us, he said, I do not ask for these only, that is his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me, notice this, through their word. Jesus prays for all of those who will believe in him through the apostles' teaching. And what is the effect of believing in Jesus through the apostles' teaching? Verse 21, so that they, that is you and I, we may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, Jesus says, and I in you, they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Our oneness comes from belief in Jesus. Our oneness does not come from minimizing doctrine. Our oneness and our unity comes by upholding true doctrine, not ignoring it. That is the way Jesus prayed. There are vast implications of this. There are missional implications of this. Jesus said, people will not know that I came from the Father unless you have unity. And your unity is going to be in the unity of the gospel. And so hold true to the gospel. What's amazing is our unity that is in the gospel, because it has these various missional implications, it's amazing that God uses the diversity of each of us to form this unity. And when people see that, man, they are just overwhelmed by, by what that is. How in the world do these diverse people, how do they come together? How do they love each other? How do they serve each other? They're so different. They have different ideologies and different education and different socioeconomics. How do they all come together? Our unity is in the gospel. Let's end at verse 12 and 13. Though I have much to write to you, I'd rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. John's preference is not to have to use the technology of ink and paper to communicate, but because of his circumstances, he uses it. But his preference is face-to-face. Our desire as a church is to be back together face-to-face. We want to hear one another's laughter. We want to hear one another cry. We want to embrace one another. We want to hear one another's voices. Because when we assemble together in our vast diversity under the unity of the gospel, that is where our joy, ultimate joy, true joy, that's where it springs up. So many of you watching, you're going to feel that today is a little bit different. It's less joyous or less, I don't know, you may have a hard time putting words to what you're feeling, and that's by design. God has intended us to live together in community. And when we are broken apart, it feels less satisfying, which is an encouragement to come back together. You see, the church ought always to pursue gospel truth, but at the same time, we ought always to pursue gospel doctrine while also pursuing gospel culture. What we mean by this is simply this. Gospel truth is the content of the good news. Gospel culture is the implications of that good news for how we live. And I'm running out of time, but hang with me. I've got to read one last, last section. It's in 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 is gospel doctrine. Verses 7 through 12 is gospel culture. Watch this. 
The Apostle John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Everyone knows God. Everyone, excuse me, whoever knows God listens to us. That's an important phrase. Whoever knows God listens to us, that is the apostles. And whoever is not from God does not listen to us. And by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. That's gospel truth. And now gospel culture. What does these truths have to do with the way we live and act with one another in the church? Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Okay, so here's the proof that God loves us. Ready? It's gospel doctrine. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So the love of God is known to us by gospel doctrine, verses 9 and 10. And based on that gospel doctrine in verse 11, which is God's sacrificial love for us and sending Jesus to rescue us from our own sins, based on that truth, we ought to love one another. Gospel culture. And then in verse 12, when we make God known by our love for one another, it's based on the gospel truth that we share in which means we cannot love one another as we ought to unless we are committed to the gospel doctrine. So when folks say, let's get rid of all that blood and wrath stuff, which is the word propitiation, what we're saying is if you get rid of the wrath and you get rid of sin and you get rid of sacrifice and atonement and you get rid of the deity of Christ, then you get rid of love. Because our love for one another is rooted in and is based upon gospel doctrine. And if we abandon gospel doctrine, we simultaneously abandon gospel culture, which is love, the love in the church that we ought to share with one another. So brothers and sisters, this is heavy stuff. This is seriousness of doctrine. And we need to make sure that we are taking it seriously ourselves, that we don't just flippantly dismiss it at the brush of our hand, but instead we take seriously everything that we hear, everything that we learn, exercising theological triage and trying to discern the apostles' teachings so that we may know truth from error. And so we need to pray. We need to pray for the purity of the doctrine. We need to pray for the purity of churches around the world. We need to pray for the perseverance of those who believe in Jesus to maintain the truth of the gospel. And so, Father, that is exactly what we're doing. We're asking that you would make sure to preserve our church and the purity of the doctrine. Because the love that we have for one another is based on it. Our understanding of your love for us is based on it. We learn that because of your great love for us, you sent Jesus 
to rescue us so that we would not perish but have everlasting life. So God, thank you for your mercy of sending Jesus. Thank you for your grace in sending Jesus. Thank you that though we are sinners, we come to know the love of God and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So God, may we never abandon the truth that Jesus is truly God, truly man, born of the virgin who lived a sinless life, crucified for our sins, risen for our justification, seated at the right hand of God, interceding for us right now, and who is coming back for his own. God, may we always hold true to these things and see them in proper perspective. We pray these things for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name.